0: Welcome to a special edition of the George Consortium COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing presented by our colleagues around the country in association with Public Health Watch at Northeastern University and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the pandemic. Hopefully it'll answer some of your questions. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University McKinney School of Law. Joining me today are my colleagues who have been working on this project. Scott Burris from Temple Law School, Lance Gable from Wayne, State Law School, and Wendy Parmet from Northeastern School of Law. Uh, Just a quick note, if I may, as we start to thank all of you for watching our shows and to this amazing cast of collaborators gathered here today for making this so much fun and providing some much-needed intellectual stimulation during these sad and difficult times. So why is the whole gang assembled today? Well, because we all read the case Wisconsin Legislature versus Palm, the uh, opinion of a week ago of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, holding that the state's health secretary, referred to in the opinion as an unelected official, apparently exceeded her statutory authority when she issued a stay-at-home order, uh, Emergency Order 28. This order had criminal penalties. Specifically, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, in a fairly bizarre series of opinions, uh, held that her emergency order technically was a rule uh, or a a general order of general application, and so subject to Wisconsin's rulemaking procedures, which I think include fiscal analysis and a whole bunch of other hoops to jump through. The court said, or at least the chief justice said, the procedural requirements of Wisconsin Chapter 2227 20- must be followed because they safeguard all people. The secretary also relied on the state's communicable disease statute as authority for her rulemaking, but the court held the order went far beyond what is authorised by that statute. The decision looks like a 4-3, but Judge Bradley in dissent noted that the Chief Justice, who wrote for the majority, also seemed to be in favour of a stay, asking the question, quote, so is there a stay or isn't there? It can't be both ways. Within hours of the opinion negating the criminal sanctions and the stay-at-home order, we saw videos of the good people of Wisconsin crowding bars, clearly not at any social distance. For the record, and some comments context, I guess. The Wisconsin governor, Evers, is a Democrat. The legislature is controlled by Republicans. They appeared to be in a place of reasonable harmony uh, as the pandemic unfolded until they fell out major league over the primary election that we discussed uh, on another show a week or so ago. So where to start? Scott, Judge Dallet in dissent, quote, legislating a new policy from the bench exceeds the constitutional role of this court. So, Wisconsin, okay, it's a swing state, but why has this hit our radar? What, what's different or special about this case that makes it worth your attention?
1: Well, of course, this is big because we have a court apparently repudiating very broadly the traditional emergency powers um, exercised by health agencies during an emergency. Now, to some degree, there's, there's an understandable set of questions about the extent of emergency power. If you go back, you know, over the last couple hundred years, of American experience, you definitely see that the basic model is when the dark, sticky stuff hits the fan, legislatures will give executives very, very broad power to do whatever is necessary. That's how the statutes are written. And that's really how things operated in similar emergencies. So, of course, in Wisconsin, they actually shut the whole state down in the Spanish flu pandemic and were one of the first states to do so, as the opinion points out. But in the last hundred years since then, we haven't had too many occasions where there was mass control measures imposed for an extended period of time with very strong social and economic effects. It's unprecedented. Usually we're used to somebody being quarantined or somebody being barred from school or something, and it's possible to allow that person due process through the normal channels of individual litigation and the habeas petition or by administrative procedure. Here it is a question. What are we supposed to do when it applies to everybody, when we have mass control and there's no individual mechanism of due process? The way that has been addressed in modern emergency law, um, the way it was addressed in the model State Emergency Health Powers Act, was essentially to confer primary responsibility on the legislature. The emergency uh, legislation gave the governor great power once an emergency was declared, but the legislature could rescind that declaration. Um, and in Wisconsin, that's a joint resolution of the two houses. Um, the legislature, if it deems what the re- what the governor is doing uh, to be excessive, they can take away the power to act altogether. That, I think, is is the probably most expeditious and reasonable form, uh, apart from the fact that these are time limited powers. In fact, as far as I can tell, the governor's authority under the, the governor's emergency declaration has expired and indeed expired before the opinion was issued. So that's how we've handled this in the past in terms of checks and balances. Um, it seems anytime, you know, from my, my experience, when I was a law student, I, I go back to there, I used to see cases like Mississippi versus Tennessee, or in this case, legislature versus governor, you say, hey, this isn't a usual case. Something unusual is going on here. And at that point, I'll turn it back to you. We have checks and balances, but this seems like a strange way to approach it. Lance,
0: uh, turning to you, Scott opened up the idea of the question as to whether the governor still had emergency powers, Apparently untouched by this opinion, but maybe uh, lapsed. How does this square with sort of this idea that the executive, you know, at the federal level, the president has unlimited power, that is the primary holder of the power? And what does this mean for other states, like uh, going the other way, the much criticized governors of Florida and Georgia who opened their states up? Are these similarly uh, uh, challengeable?
2: I think there are a couple of important points here. One is that uh, obviously the, the jurisprudence in place at the federal level related to separation of powers is not going to map identically onto the jurisprudence of any particular state, although there will be a lot of similarities. And there's a lot of discussion in this opinion about resurrecting the non-delegation doctrine or trying to, you know, essentially bolster the legislature's authority with respect to the executive, um, you know, by by kind of allowing the court to second guess that delegation in the first place. Um, And and we've seen some... Movement toward this position at the federal level in some recent Supreme Court um, dissents and and also in, in just you know a variety of writings by some of the newer Supreme Court justices. At the same time, as you as you noted, there there's also this very strong and aggressive position being taken uh, by the Trump administration about something akin to infallibility on the part of the president, uh, who who can use executive power to to the maximum extent. And, and obviously, um, you know here you know the the, the big contrast of the same. Level is, you know, as Scott mentioned a minute ago, there are definitely very strong precedents and and also structures that have been reaffirmed in the last ten to fifteen years, delegating these broad emergency powers to the governor from the legislature, and you know that typically has been upheld. Uh, We've seen very few cases like this one where you you have the broad police power authority of of the of the executive being uh, questioned in in any serious way. Uh, One one important distinction here as well is that you know the, the. the court goes out of its way to make clear that it's not directly challenging the governor's authority to issue emergency orders, but but just the, the head of the Department of Health Services' power to intervene to stop the spread of a communicable disease. Now, in, in many ways, that, that's more troubling because it doesn't even require emergency powers to engage in those kinds of intervention uh, measures. And so, you know, th- this, this opens potentially a set of positions that, that could spread to other states across the country. It's hard to predict that it will, though, because states have such different language in their in their statutes and in delegating this authority to the executive. I also think it, it would be much harder to imagine a, a successful challenge to states removing restrictions as opposed to imposing restrictions. And so, in in states like Georgia or Texas or Florida, where they're kind of rapidly and and, and some might say too rapidly opening up the and lifting the restrictions, uh, in in those states, a challenge against the governor's powers to do that, I think are, are even less likely to succeed. And so, I, I don't see this Pandora's box opening. But but I but I think that this does create a precedent that some other states might seize on, especially if there's a, a great deal of political division between the legislature and the executive.
0: So Wendy, um, dissenting Judge Hagedorn said, quote, we are a court of law. We are not here to do freewheeling constitutional theory. We are not here to step in and referee every, every intractable political stalemate. Where does emergency law sit now after this? Where do you see judicial review in? in In these contexts, uh, given this case?
3: I think it's very hard to think about this case, this particular case, for me, without recognizing the broader context or the political context. In Wisconsin, as you said earlier, Nick, this case happened shortly after the dispute about the primary. We know that this is a state, as many states, that are facing very deep partisan divides. I mean, the very fact that the legislature chose to go to court about the order, the fact that this was such a deeply contested court. And I think it recognizes the problem that we're facing right now, right? Which is political disputes are becoming so heated that they're now extending, you know, into pandemics and emergencies, areas where we did not usually think um, that um, partisanship would be overriding. And it's, it's problematic. I would say that if we were in a less contentious, less partisan moment, one might say, okay, the idea that the court is being very, and now I want to just speak for a moment at the first part of the majority opinion, the chief justice's opinion, the fact that the court is reading the emergency powers relatively narrowly. Well, you know, there, there are arguments for why emergency powers should be narrow and courts should be being careful about, like that's what we want courts to do to make sure the executives follow narrowly. Problem of course is that the court then goes on to issue this very broader discussion that raises constitutional issues and at least casts a constitutional cloud over the legislation. And we all know that this is happening in the context in which, you know, where there was no stay, or at least not clearly, and the legislature and the governor are not going to get back together and do the right thing or come up with some compromise, right? So we end up all or nothing. And the problem is, what are courts supposed to do where does the rule of law go with emergency powers when the underlying assumption, the underlying community support for emergency action is so contested and uncertain? I don't think any of us would say that executives should have unlimited authority without judicial review. On the other hand, we really do have a pandemic, right? This is not just a political concoction. And So what's deeply troubling is that our judicial review itself is becoming problematized and perhaps unable to really help us find that middle ground where we stay within the rule of law, but in fact, we can have responsible and appropriate responses to a pandemic. So I go back to the primary case and I say, you know, how do we respond in this moment of such heightened? And overarching
0: partisanship. So, Scott, I, I think we'd expect, um, if we gave this issue to our students, that they'd take a good hard look at Jacobson against Massachusetts. It's only mentioned twice in Palm, both times by dissenters. Uh, there's no real discussion. Does that reflect on sort of a, a new way that we have to start looking at public health law uh, in the time
1: of a, of a pandemic? This picks up from what Wendy was saying fundamentally, Jacobson evokes the social contract and says, there is no idea of, there's no viable idea or vision of organized society um, that does not include circumstances under which people have to sacrifice some liberty for the good of all. In fact, the court says that any other system would be impossible to imagine. You just cannot run a system on absolute rights. And, you know, that certainly is in contrast to the majority opinion and some of the concurrences where they're very big on natural law and sort of fundamental rights. But with no consideration of the idea that that we have to limit them sometimes but of course the deeper thing about the social contract is the fundamental starting point that we're all in this together Uh, that there's not a them and an us that this is not some kind of sharp practice being visited upon us and the best way to get around it is to somehow read the contract to get you what you want it is about we are in this together with the goal of producing the commonwealth common good and that is clearly absent in these circumstances and it's clearly absent in our our civil politics now at least as it is being Played out by by politician pundits, so I don't know where we stand on the position of Jacobson in terms of the social contract. The other fundamental piece about Jacobson, related to the way Wendy has framed this, is that we could trust the court to know their role um, and to enforce the rule of law, and that rule included a couple of things. One was that by and large, it wasn't for the courts to decide what the policy should be in an emergency; that that was something that was given to the legislature, and in this case, the legislature had then assigned um, certain powers very clearly to the governor, um, and then regretted it and decided it would go to courts to complain. It would have been consistent with Jacobson for the court to kind of scratch its head, ask, wait a minute, um, we t- we are lawyers that you make the decisions, you made the decision and delegated and now you're asking us to intervene and maybe you all should go out and play for a while together, work this out and, and come back. We'll just call this a political question and go home. But uh, instead, we have got this very enmeshed, very emotional, very... Uh, passionate evocation of contrasting principles, which have completely obscured the, you know, the practical problems at hand for the state of Wisconsin. And so all bets are off.
0: So Wendy, back to you on, on the social contract. And, you know, we talk about, you talk about partisanship and dysfunctionality, uh, is is there a way to, to remake the contract or is this mess just continuing?
3: Well, in this case, I think the mess continues. How we remake the contract is a very important question to which I think, you know, there are no easy answers. If I had the answer I'd. Right, boy, I don't think we get there alone, right, with these court cases. Jacobson provides important language, you know, foundational language, as Scott said about the social contract and about the important but limited role of courts. I keep coming back to the idea that, you know, Jacobson really stresses borrowing from police power cases and common law. It stresses the reasonableness test, right? And courts are there, they are to be deferential, but they're to uphold what are reasonable regulations. And we are in a moment where reasonableness Seems just, you know, so old-fashioned, so once upon a time. We're not reasonable anymore. We are adamant and we are set in our ways. And I'm looking, you know, at, for example, the concurring opinion of Justice Rebecca Grazel Bradley with the invocation of Karamatsu, and, you know, liberty is being destroyed by this order and no recognition that maybe officials are grappling with difficult issues, that this is a hard thing to do to deal with a pandemic. And maybe lines were drawn a little too far. And maybe, you know, we need, right? It's just, it's, it's, everything is overheated and hyperbolic. And so how do we remit a social contract during this? I, I, I guess I, to, to, for me to not be totally despairing, I think we have to recognize that we are seeing, you know, many courts, have decided cases differently in this moment, right? Many courts are holding orders, courts are doing interesting things in other areas communities are doing things, maybe what we need to do is, you know, not focus on the most hyperbolic, right? This case is a little bit like the cable news showcase of COVID-19. And so maybe we need to look at the cases that aren't making the headlines, where courts are trying to do their best, where courts are issuing orders about how to reopen, how to have moratoriums as we've discovered, discussed enough shows, on evictions. Maybe we need to recognize that there are actually a lot of people who are trying to do the best in very difficult circumstances. There are no easy answers about governance in the midst of this pandemic. Um, We do want to uphold the rule of law. We need to recognize that the stay-at-home borders are costly, but that many are also essential. And recognizing that reasonableness is hard, Well, there are people trying to be reasonable, Unfortunately, it's, you know, this case and certainly the concurring decisions are not evidence of that.
0: That is important that we, we reflect that, the sort of the compelling nature of Governor Como's news conferences and the transparency and, and, and the evidence and so on do strike a, a sort of a, a note of, uh, of optimism for the future. But but Lance, uh, we've already talked about sort of some of the other states and you know, your reflections on, on, on Georgia and Florida. To Texas and so on. But this is this is more than just a couple of states. Um, We're seeing various types of civil disobedience, um, state capitals being invaded by armed protesters, people gathering outside the residence of the Ohio Health Commissioner, who's so famous she now is on T-shirts and everything as having sort of saved the state, um, shouting that she's a medical dictator and trying to get rid of her. Calls for the resignation of the Pennsylvania Health Commissioner. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, we could, put this into the, the the narrow narrow tribal structure of sort of the trump strategy of blaming the scientists to an extent and hope it sort of goes away but where are you watching? What what states are you looking at at the moment? Um, is there going to be another Wisconsin, or are we going to look back as uh, this was just a sort of a, a a rather weird commentary on dysfunction in a single state?
2: It's pretty hard to predict uh, with any specificity whether there will be another Wisconsin. You know, so far, you know, as as both both Wendy and Scott already noted, there there have been plenty of challenges that have already uh, come to state courts. And most of those state courts have upheld the authority of the health commissioner or of the governor to take the kind of steps necessary to intervene to protect the health of the population during a pandemic. And, you know, we've seen, you know, the vast majority of those rulings and of the the, the orders and analyses that we're seeing from those state courts are consistent with that. And so I, I suspect that for the most part, that will continue. As you note, though, um, there, there are lots of um, potential challenges that are not necessarily between legislature and governor, but are, you know, people. people. People who are directly affected by these restrictions, including uh, business owners, including individuals who are now bringing cases against the states, and I do think that some of those cases will prevail. I I think it's hard to predict in which states, and and I I think the the civil disobedience and the the very sort of public pressure that's being put on uh, state officials is going to continue to ramp up. Uh, It's definitely been stoked somewhat by uh, the president, and one area that I think is, is worth watching is. what's going on with the Department of Justice. So uh, Attorney General Barr has put out the word, you know, has has gone public with this um, idea that the the DOJ is going to be scrutinizing state restrictions on on civil liberties, is going to be looking for places where DOJ believes states have gone too far and maybe um, either intervening or just weighing in on those cases on the side of people challenging state powers. And we've already seen one um, letter of interest in, in a in a case that involved a uh, restriction on, on religious worship. And in fact, that, that was actually cited in the majority opinion here in the Wisconsin case. But if, if the DOJ becomes more aggressive in those kinds of interventions and, tr- and tries to really take the side of, of people who are challenging state powers, that could also uh, be influential in in how some courts will uh, will view these challenges. The final thing is, is that I, I also think, we'll, we'll, you know, the protests that have been uh, getting most attention recently have been individuals you know usually small groups of individuals uh, trying to do these high-profile protests where you know the, like you mentioned uh, going into the, the Michigan State Capitol with with, with with a, a whole uh, armament uh, with, with them uh, you know ha- having uh, having guns and 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 being sort of vaguely threatening to legislators if they don't uh, reverse these policies but at the same time I, I you know we've also seen some other kinds of protests coming from the other direction where uh, you know workers are are doing these sort of targeted strikes against companies that aren't providing them with sufficient PPE or other uh, safe workspaces and I think as we get toward especially as we get toward November I, I think we might see more creative protests coming not necessarily against state powers but against state policies that prevent people from being safe uh, whether that's in the workplace or whether that's voting safely and and that, that I think I think we're I think're we're, we're sure to see some challenges along those lines as well coming from the opposite direction Direction. Thank you.
0: That's a great closing thought to just to you, Scott, and Scott, and then to Wendy, just a, a quick uh, closing thought, hopefully a cheery one.
1: Depends on what's, how you view this. I, I would say that we have people who really don't like these kinds of rules having access to courts and support from, from people to pay for their lawyers. And they are going to courts that have been pretty successfully seated with people who have the kind of ideology expressed in the majority opinion. So when you have that condition, I would imagine some people who are less afraid of the virus and they are excited about the opportunity, will be trying to score broad, libertarian, limited government uh, points um, in ways that that will start to potentially limit public health law, at least in some states. Thank goodness there's no federal question in this one. Wendy?
3: Well, two quick thoughts. I'm not sure, though, that they're curing. You know, the first is that at the end, the virus may determine how this plays out, right? If if we see the reopenings happen and things don't get much worse in terms of the deaths, it will go in one direction. If things, you know, get much worse health-wise, hopefully they don't, that may put a uh, all over some of the protests and the libertarian push to reopen. The other point, I, I just think it's interesting, Scott mentioned no federal question here, but of course, some of the cases that are arising do have federal questions and certainly the challenges that are being based on the First and Second Amendment too. And I, I think it's going to be interesting to see the what's going to happen within the sort of conservative federal judiciary, and including the Department of Justice, on the one hand, arguing against executive powers for public health, and on the other hand, the argument, you know, that the president has total authority, the president obviously has used his emergency powers in other ways very broadly. Recall there was a moment when we were all talking about building a wall with emergency powers, right? And, you know, there's obviously some tension between the argument that executives cannot respond in emergencies, and the argument that executives have basically unlimited power. There's tension between the non-delegation doctrine point that's made in the Wisconsin case, and that came up in the Supreme Court's Gundy decision, and a claim that the executive and, you know, immigration authority is unlimited and presidential authority to move appropriations is unlimited. So whether these inconsistencies are going to prove problematic or whether at the end of the day, it's just, you know, partisanship rules and consistency be damned, we shall see.
0: Well, a uh, great thanks to my colleagues. And once again, uh, thanks to you all for watching or listening to our discussions. We'll be broadcasting here on Twitter at noon Eastern time every Tuesday and Thursday. So just go to at PHLAWWATCH on Twitter or search for hashtag COVID Law Briefing show notes are at the publichealthlawwatch.org website. The shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twill.com. The briefings are produced with our great thanks to Faith Kalick and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe. And Scott, that means you have to keep washing your hands. Thank you all.